It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to your week four edition of the Fourth Quarter Chaos Podcast presented by the Fans First Sports Network College Football Feed. My name is Matt Timonini. I am joined by the voice of all things good and holy from the city of brotherly love, Corey Cohen. How are you? Like that? Are you laughing a little bit at that one? Yeah, is that, uh, it's yeah? funny. You good? All right, good. Uh, we're recording here on Sunday. Have you recovered from all of the action that we witnessed on Saturday in the week four of college football? Because I don't know that I have, quite honestly. Yeah, I've recovered, but this is, I am so excited to record this podcast with you, Matt, because I am dying to hear your thoughts about the top story of the weekend, maybe the top story of this season, your Ohio State Buckeyes against Notre Dame in an absolutely bonkers, phenomenal game. I am so excited to hear your thoughts on this one. Yeah, we will get to that. So uh, that will obviously, uh, no surprise to anybody, will be the first story that we talk about here on this episode. But just as a reminder, if you are new to the Fourth Quarter Chaos podcast, what we do is, is we look at 10 of the most exciting, thrilling, insane, chaotic games of every college football weekend. And as we go through, we give them what we call a chaos rating, a score from 1 to 100 to determine exactly how chaotic they were. Then when we're done, we add up all the scores to come up with a total chaos rating for the week. And then we compare it to the other weeks throughout the season. So far, our leader in the clubhouse is week number one. They had a chaos rating of 555 points. I, I'm not sure we're going to get to that, Corey, but it might be close this week. It, it, it could be close to 555 points. I'm very curious where we get because we sort of just make this up on the fly and, yeah. and we do what we want. So I'm, I'm very curious where we land. This is going to be an interesting week. There are obviously some games. I think it was a top-heavy week. There were some truly chaotic games, and then there were some big matchups that didn't quite live up to the hype. So I'm very curious how this plays out. But even the ones that didn't necessarily live up to the hype were chaotic in their own way. So we'll get into that. But as you said... The Ohio State Buckeyes and the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in prime time on NBC was not only the game of the the week, maybe the game of the season thus far. Uh, I don't know that it will hold up for the game of the entire season by the time we get to, you know, the end of November. But for what we have seen so far in the first four plus weeks of college football in 2023, that game was certainly one that takes the cake on the whole 
it was a fairly defensive struggle. Ohio State ended up winning 17 to 14. The two teams had remarkably similar numbers across the board. Ohio State finished with just 366 yards of total offense. Notre Dame had 351. Notre Dame was about as even as you could possibly get with 175 yards passing to 176 yards rushing. Both teams had similar number of of plays. Ohio State had 65. Notre Dame had 64. Their yards per play average, Ohio State was at 5.6. Notre Dame was at 5.5. The major difference in this game, Corey, came down to time of possession. Notre Dame had 34 minutes and 59 seconds of possession to Ohio State's 25 minutes and one second. Much of that came on back-to-back drives in the second half in which Notre Dame possessed the ball for 14 minutes on those two drives on their own. And they ended up scoring two touchdowns. There were only two touchdowns of the game on those possessions. Besides that, it was a pretty even game. Sam Hartman kind of wasn't a huge factor in this game. He was 17 of 25 for 175 yards, one touchdown. But throughout the stretch of the game, especially in the second half, Ohio State was really struggling to stop Notre Dame's rushing attack. And that's where they went. They had 39 rushing attempts on the game. Sack adjusted, they had 176 yards. Uh, there were no sacks, actually. So that sack adjusted is just their total rushing yards. Uh, Kyle McCord, especially down the stretch, picked things up a little bit. He was 21 of 37 passing for 241 yards. Running back Trevion Henderson went for 104 yards rushing. He's the only skill position player to accumulate more than 100 yards on either team. Ohio State wide receiver Emeka Ibuka did have seven receptions for 96 yards, but it was a it felt like a heavyweight slugfest, Corey. And the most chaotic thing about it was the ending. There were some things early in the game with reviews overturning fourth down conversions for Notre Dame penalties, wiping off scoring touchdowns for Ohio state. There was a late penalty, which we'll talk about here in a second, but the, the beginning of the game, the first, I don't know, maybe let's say 58 and a half minutes weren't super chaotic, but the last minute and a half made up for it. Ohio state got the ball with one twenty six left in the fourth quarter down 14 to 10. They only had one timeout left because they'd used the other ones to kind of stop the clock earlier. They started the drive. Kyle McCord missed two passes to Travion Henderson. One was a bad, was a pretty bad throw that probably would have led to 15, 20 yards uh, of pickup for Henderson. But then on third down, McCord completed a 23-yard pass to Ibuka on third down. Then after a short gain and two incompletions, he had a seven-yarder on a fourth and seven to Julian Fleming, just barely moving the chains. Then on the ensuing second down, he found Marvin Harrison Jr. for 19 yards. Then on the next second down, he couldn't find anybody open. And it looks like he was about to get sacked with something in the vicinity of 15 seconds left. However, he kind of just muscled up and threw the ball away, threw it out of bounds. Everything's fine. Moving on to third down. No big deal. But the referees got together and decided to drop a flag to call intentional grounding. He was not outside the the tackle box. And even though Marv was in the general direction of the pass, Corey, the referees decided and the uh, officiating uh, analyst and expert that NBC had on agreed that Marv was over there but he wasn't close enough to be counted as the receiver that McCord was trying to throw to. So loss of down. It isn't still third down. Then they have the yardage penalty. It'll take them down to third and 19. But fortunately for Buckeye fans, myself included, Ryan day kept that last time out because what that ended up doing was he was able to call timeout to avoid the 10 second runoff. So it is then third and 19. Kyle McCord hits a for 21 yards down to the one yard line. They hurry up because the, even with the new clock rules, they still stop the clock to move the chains under two minutes in each half. They spike the ball seven seconds left. They basically have just two plays. The first is an incompletion into the end zone to Marvin Harrison Jr. And then with just three seconds left, Ohio State did something that it really has not done well all season, didn't do it well in this game. And they just kind of played a little bit of of smash mouth football and gave the ball to Chip Trainum, who last year was a linebacker for Ohio State, although he started his career as a running back at Arizona State. And he pushed forward and broke the goal line just barely to give OSU the game-winning touchdown. We're going to get to the chaos that happened after the game, Corey. But there was 
lots of cheering, lots of profanity at my parents' house where I was watching that game. Um, thrilling, exacerbating, exhausting, exciting, all of the emotions for Buckeye fans. And while we probably have a lot of qualms about what happened to lead up to that final drive, that was an expertly crafted drive from a quarterback and coach who hadn't been able to do a lot of those same things throughout the course of regulation leading up to it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so curious to know leading up to that, the drive before that Ohio State has fourth and one and they run a jet sweep instead of just oh, pushing Jesus. it forward. Yeah, I, I got to know. I know we fast forwarded to the most chaotic parts, but I got to know what your thought process was there. Uh, that was the point where I wanted to find Ryan Day and like make him watch reruns of like the worst TV shows of all time, just as torture for what he did. Um, <laughs> like a clockwork I, orange style. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that, but I didn't want to talk about like pinning open his eyes or anything. Um, it was horrible. It, it, here's the thing. And this leads in actually to the conversation about what happened after the game, which is probably just as much chaotic as what happened on the game. Losing to Michigan, no surprise, is a big deal to Ohio State fans, Ohio State players, and Ohio State coaches. The last two years, Ohio State has lost to Michigan in no small part because Michigan has been able to play bully ball and just dominate the lines on both sides of the ball. The first half of last year, it was fairly even. It was a close game. Michigan ran away in the second half. But the thing is, is Ryan Day has really seemed to take this idea that his team is not tough personally, in my opinion, to the detriment of him, of his, of his performance as a coach and to the detriment of his team, Ohio state, as the program is currently constructed is not a team that is built to be a smash mouth team on either side of the ball, especially on offense, which is where Ryan day concerns himself more than any other, because he was the former offensive coordinator. Ohio state is a skill team. If you look at the wide receivers, if you look at the running backs, they are not a team that is built to just push people around. The offensive line is not very good in run blocking. They haven't been, even though this year is, um, they have three new starters on the offensive line because three of their, their starters are now in the NFL. Two of them are starting. They struggle in run blocking, but they usually are very good in pass protection. Did not give up a sack. Uh, I only actually only gave up one sack. That was the, um, that was the intentional grounding. That was the only time that Kyle McCord was sacked last night. And this has been a problem. And he, Ryan Day gets so into his head and tries to overthink every single thing. He outthinks himself in those situations. And while I don't know that running up the middle was the would have been the right thing to do in that situation, I would not have been mad if they would have tried a quarterback sneak if they would have tried a bush push type play um, to try anything like that or get creative and, 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 uh, and run a play that, that is moving forward. If you want to throw a quick pass, a quick slant to Marvin Harrison Jr. or Mecca Buka, do that. But a jet sweep to the boundary. And this is another thing he does. He always, he runs to the boundary way too much. If you're going to run a jet sweep with one of your most uh, explosive athletes, Give him room to run. So it was a horrible play call. There were a lot of horrible play calls. I have long contended for multiple years over at LandGrantHolyLand.com that Ryan Day needs to give up offensive play calling for a myriad of reasons, not the least of which is his um, inability to get out of his own head. But it was a horrible play call. If that would have been the thing that was the last offensive uh, opportunity that Ohio State had because either Notre Dame was able to extend their next drive. They ended up having to punt after that. Um, or Ohio State wasn't ever to get anything going on their final possession and ended up losing that game. I, I think you might have seen pitchforks and torches in the streets of Columbus because that is emblematic of a lot of the issues that Ohio State has had over the last couple seasons, and people are starting to get frustrated with it. Um, fortunately, Day called a pretty excellent final drive, and Kyle McCord was able to execute it fairly well too. So that's not the, necessarily the biggest takeaway from that game, but had they not completed this comeback, I, I think it might've been Corey. Yeah, there was, there were a lot of people scratching their heads on that. Then on the other end, there were people scratching their heads at the next drive that Notre Dame gets the ball back. And you were talking about yeah. how that's a team that was 
the way that they controlled the game was just by running the ball, moving the clock, and continuing to move the chains. And when they had a chance to do that, they got the ball back with four minutes and 12 seconds. They could have just kept the ball for the remainder of the game. I, yes, But absolutely. They, they decided to not run it that much. They decided to go with some passes from Sam Hartman, and they ended up killing still a few minutes of clock. But they still gave Ohio State time on that final drive to let mm-hmm. Kyle McCord cook. Yeah, I tweeted it at the Land Grant Holy Land Twitter account at Land Grant 33. I said, what is Marcus doing? Marcus Freeman. I mean, at least make Ohio State use all of their timeouts, run the ball. You have the clock, the new clock rules to your advantage until you get under two minutes, too. So, like, just keep letting the clock go. I'm very glad that Ohio State alum Marcus Freeman did not do that. <laughs> um, so maybe he gave us a. Are you suggesting a, he's a double agent? No, because I think he said some pretty nasty things about Ohio State in the last couple of years. But uh, I'm appreciating it, appreciative of it nonetheless. Um, but let's get to the stuff that I, after the game. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people saw the first thing practically out of Ryan Day's mouth on the field with Catherine Tappan, I believe is, is, is her name for NBC. He said, I'd like to know where Lou Holtz is right now. What he said about our team, what he said about our team, I cannot believe. This is a tough team right here. We're proud to be from Ohio. It's always been Ohio against the world, and it will continue to be Ohio against the world. I'll tell you what, I love those kids. We've got a tough team. For many people watching that game, I think they were probably confused as why the hell Ryan Day is talking about Lou Holtz and why is he mad at him? I Obviously, we all heard about it in, in, in Buckeye Nation. Um, essentially Lou Holtz was on an episode of ESPN's Pat McAfee show on Friday in South Bend on the game day set. And I'll read you part of his comments, but he said basically quote, Notre Dame is a better football team than Ohio state. And let me tell you why we have the best offensive line in the country. He then goes on to talk about Sam Hartman. He talks about the fact that he also coached under Woody Hayes at Ohio state. He's from Ohio, uh, or spent time in Ohio. He won a national championship at Ohio state. But then he goes on to talk about Ryan Day specifically and says, however, he has lost to Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Michigan twice, and everybody that beats him does so because they're more physical than Ohio State. And I think Notre Dame will take that same approach. Goes on to talk about Notre Dame's lack of a strength of schedule. He he closes out his comments by saying, quote, just tell Ohio State this. You tell them they better bring their lunch because it's going to be a full day's work. Now, there's a lot going on there, Corey. First off, I will say, Lou's not wrong. Like Ohio State, like the physicality, like that's that's an objective analysis. As I said earlier, this is stuff that gets into Ryan Day's head. If you watch it, if you watch the video, me reading it doesn't do it justice. Lou Holtz is playing it like a wrestling villain. Like he's playing it like a wrestling heel. It is not dissimilar to what him and Mark May did when they were still doing their show on ESPN. That was the vibe that they gave. And it is the persona that Lou Holtz has taken in his later years to kind of be an antagonist. He has always been a Notre Dame homer. That is not a surprise. That That's not the issue here. Again, the comments on their face, I don't think are that big of a deal. But I think Ryan Day took it personally when they called him out by name and he called out his team um, by saying they're not a physical team. And that got under Ryan Day's crawl. It has for multiple years. And do I think that Ryan Day's response to Lou Holtz was an equal response? No, I I think it was a little bit of an overreaction, to be quite honest with you. But as an Ohio State fan who has watched Ryan Day for the past I guess he got to Columbus in 2017. So for the past seven years, six, seven years, um, kind of be a a calm guy for the most of the time. I liked that fire. Uh, I don't know that it was an appropriate response to what Lou Holt said, but if that gets him fired up for the rest of the season, if it's able to get that team fired up, I mean, we've seen, I mean, to be quite honest, we've seen Nick Saban and Bill Pelichek make a lot more out of a lot less in terms of bulletin yeah. board material. So like, I'm not mad about it. Um, but I understand Lou Holtz is like an octogenarian who has had health problems. And um, despite whatever you think about his political beliefs is generally a well-liked guy uh, in the coaching circle. So I would not be surprised if at his next, uh, next press conference, Ryan day does a little bit of an apology, but, but this is a thing for Ryan day. Like this is a thing about worrying about whether or not his team is tough. And I wish he would get over it because I think it hurts the team long-term more than it actually helps. But I do like the fire. If he takes that fire and moves forward, great. If he worries about being tough again, I think Ohio State fans are in for a lot of trouble the next few months. 
from an outsider's perspective, I loved it. I thought it was incredible. It was really funny. It was pretty chaotic if we're going back to that. I just thought Lou Holt, first of all, he went on ESPN. He went on the Pat McAfee show. So he sort of opens himself up. As you said, he sort of delivered it as a wrestling heel. So I'm not, I don't feel bad for Lou Holtz that Ryan Day was jawing at him after the game. Lou Holtz also not the best guy in the world. In the past, he, he once said that Hitler was a great leader, I think comparing him to Rich Rodriguez at Michigan. So like, yeah, he's just, he's not, well, yeah, he's not the, the most innocent best guy. So I'm fine with, with anyone starting beef with him. And I just find it so funny that when Ryan Day asked, I want to know where Lou Holtz is right now. It's like, he's asleep and he's been asleep for a few hours. He's yeah. in his eighties. He's, he's not up at, at 1130 PM. He's just, he was at the game, but I'm sure that cause they did like a, a celebration and anniversary for their national championship season. I would not be surprised if he went home immediately after that. Yeah. I, it, it was just so funny. I loved it. I thought I, this is what's great about college football. You can have the most thrilling, entertaining win. And then the coach immediately in the post-game interview starts jawing at an 80 something something year old former coach who criticized him the day before. Like I loved it. I genuinely loved it. I don't want him to apologize. I thought it was great entertainment. I I was, I was cackling at it. I loved it. And that wasn't even the most chaotic thing of the game. We're deep into this podcast and we haven't mentioned the thing that so many people are talking about, which is the final play where Ohio state scores their touchdown. Notre Dame had 10 players on the field. Oh, yeah. They were missing a whole player on the field, and that's exactly where Ohio State ran the ball, was right to the area where there should have been a Notre Dame defensive lineman. I think they were actually short a player on two plays. I just and saw what, that, yeah. What Marcus Freeman said after the game was they knew. After the first play, after the, the incompletion to, uh, to Marvin Harrison Jr., they knew they were short a player. The problem was Ohio State didn't substitute. So if 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 they were going to run somebody onto the field, Ohio State had the opportunity to snap the ball. So if because they were down at the goal line, if you run somebody onto the field, they are then behind the line of scrimmage. If they do not cross the line of scrimmage, Ohio State then can call can snap the ball and move it forward. I mean, they were already on the one yard line, so they move it, you know, halfway closer to make it an even easier play. Um, and they even if the time would have run out, they would have gotten an untimed down because you can't end a, a, a period on a defensive penalty. Uh, so Marcus Freeman explained why they did it. To be quite honest with you, I probably would have taken that chance yeah. if I was Marcus Freeman and just been like, take the penalty because it's one yard. And I think one player justifies trying to stop at one yard because if you're if you're only giving up a foot and a half to three feet. I don't know that that's as, as big of a deal as having an, an 11th defender on the field. So, right. We um, got to do some like full game theory here. What's, what's yeah. worth more? Is it one and a half exactly. feet or a whole player? And I'm with you. I think they should have just taken the penalty. Also, for the chaos, I would have loved to see a sprinting defensive lineman yeah. run from like the 40 yard line down trying to get there in time before Ohio State snaps the ball. That would have been fun. Yeah. It's, it was a, for a game that only had 31 points scored between two offenses that, coming into it, you thought were, were pretty prolific. Um, I, I do wonder what this means for Ohio state. And that's not, this is not necessarily the podcast for this, but like, are they a defensive team now? Like, is that where they are in, in this era of college football? I, I don't know. We will wait and see. I think Ohio state is well-timed to have their buy coming off of this. We didn't even mention the fact that um, Ohio state running back Travion Henderson ran for a 61 yard touchdown run. And on that same play, Marvin Harrison Jr. got rolled up on. There was no fault of anybody's at all. Marv was delivering a block probably better than any future, you know, early first round draft pick wide receiver ever should. And somebody behind him got blocked into him and rolled up on his ankle, which he had, which he played all last season on, which was severely, um, severely sprained last year. And he has another one. He did come back, but I'm very, for I'm very happy that He's going to get two weeks off before they have to play Maryland uh, to do that. But anyway, all right, let's move on. Cause that was a long time on one game. We don't normally do yeah, that. That's but true. I do want to hear it. Yeah. We got to have a chaos rating. Cause when you've got a Lou Holtz comment after the game, you've got 10 players on the field in the final play. You've got Kyle McCord just showing out in that final drive uh, yeah. jet sweep on fourth down. What, what do you got? I, I mean, look, our highest chaos rating of the season 
was that Colorado TCU game at the beginning of the year. Like maybe it's my personal biases. Maybe it's my scarlet and gray colored glasses, but like, I think it was up there with that chaos. Like I'm not sure just because Colorado was a severe underdog. Like, I don't know that it's at the 92 points that we gave Colorado TCU, but I'm very comfortable giving this an 88. Like I think all this stuff before, during and after the game, uh, I'm good with an 88. What is that too high? Is that too low? What do you No, think? I like it to me. It's, it's right up there with that opening Colorado TCU game. And I can understand it's a little less chaotic. This wasn't these back and forth touchdowns with these crazy plays, but it was a heavyweight bout. It was entertaining throughout the game. And then some crazy stuff that happened at the end. I think that's a great score for it. And I will tell you, Ryan Day did not stop his Lou Holtz slander afterwards. I love every it. Time, every time somebody brought it up in the post-game press conference, he went off a little bit more. He said something to the effect at one point, like, I've got a lot more to say about Lou Holtz, but I've got more <laughs> class than he does, is, is, is basically what he said. So I'm paraphrasing, so don't quote me on that. But anyway, I genuinely right. love it. I do too. I absolutely love seeing that from Ryan Day. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. That was the game Saturday night. The game you're going to talk about next, Corey, is a game that I watched as well on Friday night that was also exciting, was also chaotic, and that is NC State and UVA. So tell me about this one because it was a barn burner. This game was wild. So this game was not on anybody's radar. If it weren't on Friday night when not much else was on, I don't think many people would have been watching it except for NC State and Virginia fans. But it was thrilling. So Virginia is down eight. They're playing at home. They come back in the final minute. So now they're down two, but they need a two-point conversion. Well, on that touchdown play that they bring it to, that that they needed, an offensive lineman ends up headbutting a player on NC State and gets like, an unsportsmanlike conduct. Literal headbutted. Like he just yeah. went up to him and hit him in the head with his helmet. It was nuts. Absolutely bonkers. I have no idea what he was thinking. And because of that, it's now a 15-yard penalty. So instead of, and again, they need a two-point conversion. They need it or the game is essentially over. They need that to tie the game. And instead of doing it at the two, where we just talked about it with Ohio State Notre Dame. If you bring the player on, they move one and a half feet, what's it matter? Well, this is a pretty big deal. Instead of the two-yard line, now you're back at the 17-yard line because of that headbutt. So the Virginia quarterback 
he scrambles. He somehow finds the end zone. He heaves it up as he's getting drilled. He finds the end zone for the two-point conversion. His helmet is falling off as he hits the ground. And then he takes off the helmet and then sort of flexes. And then they call that an unsportsmanlike penalty. Now, fortunately for Virginia, the play still counts. But so the game is tied, but the 15 yard penalty is going to be assessed on the kickoff, which means now NC State with the ball back with some time is 15 yards closer to getting into field goal range. So absolutely bonkers play there, but they do tie the game. Then NC State takes the field. Their quarterback, Brennan Armstrong, formerly the quarterback at Virginia. He gets it up the field, into field goal range, playing at his old home stadium in Charlottesville, gets it into field goal range. They line up for the game-winning kick, and it gets blocked. And everyone's freaking out. The students there are going crazy. It's exciting. And then we see a flag. The flag was for leaping. I didn't know that was in the rule book. But oh, you yeah, I knew it is leap. Yeah. I saw it immediately. What leaping is, is you cannot jump over the line of scrimmage. You cannot jump over the center who is snapping the ball because he is defenseless in that position. So that is where I saw it live. I was like, that's what are you doing? Like, you have to know that as a special teams player in college football. I think he was trying to be Troy Palomalu, like old school safety, <laughs> yeah. just time it right. And But it, it absolutely makes sense. That's a penalty because if the center stands up and there's a guy on top of him, that's extremely dangerous. So the blocked field goal, that's going to send this into overtime. That gets waved off. They get a second chance because of the leaping penalty. And NC State hits the field goal in the second chance. They win it 24 to 21. But my goodness, Virginia, they came so close and they shot themselves in the foot, not once, not twice, but three times in the final moments three of this times. game. I, it was it was crazy. Uh they overcame one of them. They overcame the headbutt, but the 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 taking off the helmet and the leaping penalties are killer. Now I, I think that I agree with the commentators from that game. And I apologize that I don't remember who they were or even what network it was on. Uh, I was assuming it was on uh, an ESPN channel, but um, they said that they, they probably wouldn't have called him for taking his helmet off because as you said, it was up around his face. Like he got hit and then he took it off after the fact, but it was that combined with the flex that, that did that. How do you feel about that? Cause like, I'm all for like, I think, I think, I think taunting is the dumbest rule in sports yeah. because like, who cares? Like we're, we're, we should be past that by now. So like, I kind of loved the flex. If he'd have done it with his helmet on, I don't think it would have been a problem, but the combination of those two things uh, apparently was enough to go to warrant a 15 yard penalty, much to the dismay of the Cavaliers fans. That added to the chaos was that the announcers were talking about, Oh, yeah. what it was his helmet coming off? Did he take it off? Was it the flex that got it? I mean, it was so funny. They don't have a two-minute report from the refs like they do in the NBA, where you can have the referee explain what exactly was the line. It kind of reminds me of the key and peel sketch with the touchdown dance with like how many pumps do you oh, have? And I'm like, so what can you flex one arm? Can you flex two arms if the helmet's partially off? What exactly was it? Ultimately, I think it's like I I um I agree with you that the taunting penalty is stupid. But it exists. And so if you're a player, you have to yeah. know that you've got to wait till you get off the field before you start celebrating and going nuts and doing anything that could be considered by any referee potentially excessive. So I, I'm I'm with you. I, I I hate the rule. I I think taunting is fun as long as it's not genuinely like mean spirited, but it's there. You gotta know the rule book and and it is what it is. But man, Virginia yeah. just brutal. <laughs> Yeah, I feel bad for the Cavs fans, especially because they've been through a lot in the past year. Yeah. Like legitimately, like they've been through a lot, not only that team, but that university, that community. So you really hate to see that. But uh, all right, what is your chaos rating for this one? I feel like this one's going to be pretty high too, isn't it, Corey? Yeah, this is going to be very high. I'm going to give this a chaos rating of 81. So not quite at the level of Ohio State Notre Dame. But to me, this game was was thrilling and it provided so much in those final minutes. Yeah, I, I think that is totally fair. All right, this one, not a chaotic in the exact same way, but chaotic in a, a much different but equally comedic way. And this is the Penn State Nittany Lions absolutely demolishing Iowa 31 to nothing. Iowa had a total of 76 yards of offense, 56 through the air, 
20 on the ground. Why is that especially noteworthy? Because the offensive coordinator of Iowa will have his contract voided at the end of the season if they do not average 25 points a game and win at least six games. I think they're going to get to six games. But they put up zero. Uh, I haven't done the math, Corey. I should have done the math and to see what Ohio, or what Iowa's offense is is averaging. They finally got over 25 last week. I think they had 41 last week. But then you throw in the fact that the offensive coordinator for the Iowa Hawkeyes is the son of the head coach of the Iowa Hawkeyes. And it is just a mess. It's absolutely chaotic. What's crazy is, is that like Penn State won 31 nothing. They weren't especially impressive on uh, on offense. They only got 397 yards of their own. They only averaged uh, 3.8 yards per rush on the ground. They uh, only put up 182 yards passing. Like this was not a game in which you look at it and you say, oh, Penn State was a juggernaut. Iowa's defense normally really good, uh, but they, you know, they just got blown away. The, the difference, not dissimilar, but to a much bigger degree than Ohio State and Notre Dame, Penn State had the ball for 45 minutes and 27 seconds. There's only 60 minutes in the game. So in terms of time of possession, Iowa had it for less than a quarter of the time. They also turned the ball over four times. Um all of them on fumbles, by the way. None of them were on in, in interceptions. So chaotic in a much different way than some of these other games. It was not a, a crazy finish. But Brian Ferentz, as the offensive coordinator of Iowa, basically saying you have to score 25 points per game and going into, I think, their first Big Ten game of the year and not scoring any, and his team not even getting 80 yards of offense is absolutely hysterical to me, Corey. It was so pathetic. Iowa, as a football program, I'm sorry for any Hawkeye fans listening. It's it's an embarrassment at this point. It really was last year, and it remains this year. It is just an embarrassment. Maybe if not for the, the defense, maybe not the defense, but the offense is just an absolute punchline. I can't tell how good Penn state is because so far the competition they've played hasn't told us a lot. I mean, they, they beat Illinois, they beat Iowa, but to me, the fact that Iowa was even ranked was kind of a joke. They have not shown me anything last year or this year that this is anything more than a mediocre team because of Brian Ferentz and that offense. By the way, I looked it up. His current average is 21.3 points per game. Now he's got to be a little bit happy because in these next few games, he doesn't have incredibly difficult competition from opposing defenses, so he can maybe make up some of the ground there. He's got Michigan State, he's got Purdue, and really just the Big Ten West in general is so weak yeah. this year that he should, keyword should, be able to put up those points. He's not going to have to face the defenses of Ohio State or Michigan or even Maryland, but this is a bad team. They got embarrassed in State College, and... Yeah, it's it's just an absolute mess there. The fact that it's gotten to this point is pretty pathetic. Brian Ferentz is a very bad offensive coordinator, and it continues to be very entertaining to watch the average every single week to see, oh, is this contract going to get voided? Is it not? What's he on pace for? Hilarious. It's pretty wild. Yeah, absolutely hilarious. Uh, all right, so I this might be a little too cheeky for us, but chaos rating, I'm going 25. Yep, I like it. More more points than Iowa scored per game this season. Yep, I'm going 25. Uh, all right, another absolute look. What is going on with the ACC and the chaos? Like, uh, it's a chaotic conference. Of, it really is. I think I think the Pac-12 might be the most entertaining conference this year. But in terms of chaos, the ACC is doing really well. What's your next game here, Corey? So my next game is the game that early in the season everyone was hyping up. This would be. A classic, I think people were shocked by week one when Clemson lost to Duke, but still a heavyweight bout that is between Florida State and Clemson. It was a pretty back and forth game. It was a heavyweight bout. And then come the fourth quarter, the defenses of both squads stepped up. Neither team's offense could score under two minutes left in the game. Clemson has the ball. They're in the red zone. They're draining the clock down. Clemson's kicker gets up to kick a go-ahead field goal, and they they show the parents. I felt I felt so bad. They they go on TV on the broadcast on ABC. 
they show the parents of the Clemson kicker, Jonathan Whites. They're there. They're excited. College kickers. He missed the kick. So the game remains tied from a very makeable distance. Then Florida State gets the ball back. They got it close to field goal range. But on fourth down, they couldn't convert. It's a turnover on downs. That ends up sending it into overtime. Florida State in overtime. You can only hold them back for so long. But the combination of Jordan Travis at quarterback and Keon Coleman at wide receiver, two phenomenally talented players. They find the end zone in the first section of overtime. Then in the back half, Clemson has to get a touchdown to send this into a double overtime. On second down, they ran Will Shipley, their running back, with a nine-yard gain. He is so talented. They have a pretty strong running game. But after now they're now at third and one, and they don't give it to Will Shipley. They don't even give it to Kate Klubnick, the quarterback, to try to push it through. They they try to pass. It doesn't work on third and one and on fourth and one. Clemson not able to score in overtime. Florida State hangs on. They remain undefeated. And Clemson, their season is officially done when it comes to making not just the college football playoff, but most likely even making the ACC championship game because they now have two ACC losses. And I'm not sure that a team like North Carolina or Duke is going to pick up two ACC losses. So Florida State seems like they're destined for the ACC championship game. Not sure who's going to play them, but I don't think we're going to see a rematch of this game. Clemson, a preseason favorite, a team that was in that playoff conversation, they are now two and two. Love to see it. <laughs> Love to yeah, see it. Yeah, it's 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 it has been a lot of fun. This year seems like a deep year of college football. And count me in, it's exciting to have teams like North Carolina and Duke in the conversation as opposed to Clemson. I know maybe it's not the best thing for for the conference that I cover. And if you want to hear more, you can listen to listen to Action Packed right here on the FFSN College Football Network. We've got a new episode coming out this week. We'll talk all about it. But it is fun to maybe for a year, two years now, not have Clemson in the conversation. And maybe we'll see North Carolina. Maybe we'll see Duke. Duke hosting game day against uh, Notre Dame for the first time ever. All right, Corey, what's your uh, chaos rating for this one? Because there was nothing absolutely insane, so I can't have it quite to the level of the other games I've mentioned. But still a heavyweight bout, still went to overtime. I'll give it a 70. I think that's fair. Yeah, I, I watched most of this game uh, entertaining. Anytime you go to overtime with this, and I, and I think the fact that there is a little bit of schadenfreude with Clemson, that that comes into play here. And it was a comeback, so I think that's totally fair. All right, I mentioned the fact that I think that the Pac-12 might be the most entertaining conference in college football, and I've been championing it on multiple podcasts here on the fans for sports network, college football feed uh, on fame and fortune and everything that goes with it and no fall weddings. I think two of the most exciting teams are Washington state and Oregon state. Obviously they have a lot of connection right now because they are the two teams uh, two schools uh, that are getting left behind as the PAC 12 uh, implodes. And they faced off on Saturday in a game that was pretty exciting. I think they're two quarterbacks. They've been two of my dark horse Heisman trophy candidates this year. DJ Uyunglele for Oregon State didn't have a great game, but Washington State's Cameron Ward was pretty great uh, on on Saturday night. He was 28 for 34 for 404 yards passing and four touchdowns. Uh, he also had a rushing touchdown as well. Um, it was a it was a really exciting game. Um, Wazoo went up 35 to 14 with 5:15 left in the third quarter. At that point, you think, okay, this is over, but the Beavers never quit. DJ Uyunglele broke off a 26-yard touchdown run on fourth and two just inside the fourth quarter to get the score to 35-21. to The Cougs added a field goal, which, you know, ended up being pretty big because Oregon State had added two more touchdowns down the stretch, the last one with just 112 left. They couldn't get the ball back to even have an attempt to tie or to win, but it was really two exciting teams playing down to the wire, and I think Cameron Ward and Wazoo are for real in the Pac-12. I have I said on No Fall Weddings that I wanted whoever won this game to win the final Pac-12 title and to yeah. like 
to claim it for the rest of eternity. And who knows? Maybe they're going to go to a, a maybe they the Pac-12 will live again and they'll bring in some Mountain West. Who knows? They're talking about relegation. There's all these different things that they're talking about right now. So um, very exciting stuff. But I think Cameron Ward's for real. I think this was a fun, entertaining, exciting game and uh, not super chaotic. But if you get, you know, if you got a 21 point comeback to to only lose by three, that's at least entertaining. So entertainment score, pretty high chaos, not so much. So I think I'm going to go with a 39 here, Corey. Okay, yeah, that definitely seems like a fair score. It was I was keeping an eye on this game. And like you, I thought, yeah, this is over Washington State is handling this, and then Oregon State comes storming back. It it was a, a fun game between two teams. I'm with you. I agree. I think Washington State, they've got a big chip on their shoulder from the top, from their head coach, Jake Dickert, all the way down to the entire program being left behind, left for dead almost. And I think that they can they can be a player. I mean, the, the Pac-12 at the top is stacked this year. Oregon and USC and Utah all look really good, but I would love to see Washington State in that fight. Absolutely. All right. You were, this is our first mention of the SEC today, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so you're heading out to the ACC. What, uh, what, what game are you focusing on here, Corey? Yeah. So down in the South, this is a conference not known for chaos necessarily, known for quality, but usually not as much chaos as, say, the ACC or maybe even the Big 12 will deliver. So this game was between Arkansas and LSU. Again, not on too many people's radars. I believe the line was 17 and a half. So this wasn't supposed to be close. But Arkansas gave LSU one hell of a fight. It was back and forth. At no point did it look like LSU was really in control. With just over five minutes left, Arkansas tied the game. Then LSU gets the ball. They move it down the field methodically, kind of like how we were talking about. We thought Notre Dame might do, could do. They did that on that final drive. LSU drives it down. They get it into red zone. They kill the clock. One interesting thing, I believe we talked about it on an earlier episode of this podcast, was the philosophy of when a team, when you're a defense, and the offense is in field goal range, and there's little time left, and they've got a chance where they could just kick a pretty easy field goal to win the game. Do you let them walk into the end zone and give your offense a chance to get the ball back, drive down the field, and maybe send it into overtime? Well, Arkansas had that opportunity. LSU had it at a I believe it was like the five-yard line, and they were just running the ball. And I think it was tough to tell, but it looked like they were actually trying to get into the end zone and get the touchdown. And Arkansas's defense did not want that. They stopped them. They prevented it from being a touchdown. They prevented their offense from getting the ball back. But what that meant was LSU could wind it all the way down to the final seconds, hit an easy chip shot field goal, and win the game 34-31. to As the grandchild of two Arkansas alums, it pains me to see them not take the smart play there and let them into the end zone. That is the smart play. That is what you should absolutely do every time. Uh, They did not do it, and it cost them. Although, I will say, I I remember if I had them first or not, but I have LSU in my college football playoff, or at least I did at the beginning of the season. So I guess it was a win-win for me either way. So, Corey, what do you have in terms of a chaos rating for LSU-Arkansas? I'll go with a 30. I think this could have been a lot more chaotic if Arkansas did what we both wanted them to do, and that was let LSU walk into the end zone. Arkansas, again, they'd scored 31 points in this game, so this was not, oh, we don't really trust our offense to do much. They could have moved it down the field, but instead they let this play out the boring way. They let LSU kill the clock, win it with a field goal at the end. I'll give it a 30. Fair enough. Uh, Not dissimilar from my Penn State, Iowa pick. The next game I'm going to go with was the absolutely bludgeoning performance by the Oregon Ducks against the Colorado Buffs. Uh, The score ended up being 42 to six. And while anytime you score that many points in a game that was this hyped up, I think it is a bit chaotic. The thing that I, 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 I think is the most chaotic about it is Oregon's first year head coach, Dan Lanning, apparently him and Ryan Day had some uh, conversations this week about how to stir up some uh, some trash talking excitement for games, because in the pregame. It's one thing to say this, Corey, to your team, 
it's another to know that it's being filmed and being put out there. So I don't know if this was an Oregon video that got put out or if it was a Fox video that got put out. I think it was from Fox. I believe but it was Dan Fox, Lanning. Yeah. yeah, it was Fox. Dan Lanning, again, first year head coach for Oregon. He's a former defensive coordinator at, at Georgia who came over after the last two national championships. He went off on a tirade about, you know, about Colorado and all of that stuff, which is fine. That's normal pregame stuff. But the line that sticks out is they're fighting for clicks. We're fighting for wins. And given how we know Coach Prime takes to like people talking about his team and to him, uh, I thought that that was ballsy. Obviously, they backed it up 42 to six. Like you could say whatever the hell you want at that point. Um, so I think that was chaotic. I think that was fun. The game, the the score was not, I mean, I'll be honest, the score was a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought Oregon would win handily, but I kind of love it. Like, I think Dion, and I don't remember if we talked about this or if it was on another show. Like, I think Dion is a genuinely good human being. Like, I think he legitimately cares about his players, but he's Dion Sanders. Like, we know who he is. He's been a fixture in the world of sports for got three decades. I mean, at least, you know, three, three plus decades. We know who he is. He is a guy. He's a showy guy. His nickname is prime time for a reason. So if somebody gives him a little bit of prime time back, I think that's fun. Uh, it was the game, a back and forth chaotic score. No, but Dan Lanning talking trash to the king of trash talking. I'm totally good with that. Totally fine with that. So because it was a butt kicking, because of the trash talk because I think that the fascination with Colorado and coach prime isn't going anywhere. Um, I'm going to give it a, uh, I'll go, I'll go with a 40 just because Dan Lanning was full throated in his comments. And, and I respect that. So I'll give it a 40, maybe a little high, but I'll, but I'll go with that. I think anytime, I think we mentioned this last week, anytime it's Deion Sanders, it gets a boost for that. And then when Dan yep. Lanning sort of buys into it also, it gets a boost. So I think almost half of that score is from some of the off the field stuff that comes with it. But I do think it's a good score. 100. I also found it funny that sort of the irony that you're talking about what Dan Lanning said is fine to say to your team, maybe a little questionable to say on camera, which is so funny because to me, that's the that goes all the way back to when Dion was hired at Colorado and he goes in and tells the players there basically get out transfer out yeah, you're all fired because yeah. i don't want you here yeah you're all fired which again i i i could understand why he would say that again the team had one win last year and he wants to bring in his own guys and every coach to some extent brings in his own guys and has guys leave so it's not that he said it but it was uh should he have said that on camera and it was it was just funny that for both coaches there was that questionable decision not to say it necessarily but to say it on camera and to put that out yeah yeah all right we're gonna stick in the pack 12 Corey, for your next game uh tell me about utah and ucla because i i saw a little bit of this but not a ton of this game yeah so this game there was some hype going into it and then that sort of died down a bit because a lot of the hype was we're finally going to see cam rising the great utah quarterback who got injured in the bowl game last year we haven't seen him since and the thought was that he was going to play against ucla make his debut for this season didn't happen i believe it was the day before it was made clear that he would not be playing against ucla which meant that for utah we would be seeing the same old offense that we've seen throughout their first three games. It's slow. It's not much. It's not very effective. But the Utah defense is legit. And so we saw Utah score two touchdowns in the first half. Quarterback Nate Johnson, who's been filling in for Cam Rising, he did what he had to do in this case because the Utah defense was excellent. They didn't allow UCLA, a team that was undefeated and ranked going into this game, they didn't allow UCLA to score a single point until there were just under four minutes left in regulation. Utah's defense was phenomenal. Utah's offense couldn't do much to put the game away. They give you uh, UCLA the ball back. The Bruins have a chance to drive it down the field and tie the game. At this point, they're down 14-7. to They've got a few minutes left, but UCLA quarterback Dante Moore in the final four plays, got sacked twice. They never even made it close to driving this ball down the field. And so because of that, it wasn't very chaotic. It was, again, a slow, sort of ugly offensive game. 
and UCLA, there wasn't even much hope from a chaos excitement perspective that, oh, okay, now UCLA can tie the game because there was really not much of any chance that they were going to do that. Utah's defense throughout the entire game was excellent. UCLA's offense wasn't much. Dante Moore, as I said, took two sacks, and the the turnover on downs was done within just four plays. So I, I would say not very chaotic. I would give this just a 25. I was hoping for more, but Utah's defense is so legit, and UCLA was not able to keep up with even a slow and sort of an ugly Utah offense. Yeah, I mean, both of these defenses, I mean, really equated themselves very well. Uh, Utah did not score in the second half. You mentioned Dante Moore, the quarterback for UCLA. He's a true freshman, or he's a freshman, um, but he only completed 43% of his passes. He was 15 of 35 which is like, ooh, that's that's rough in in this. And he was sacked seven times for a loss of fifty eight yards. Like that's that's brutal. That is rough. So, um, and I will right. I will give him some credit in that Utah's defense they are fully legit. Like they played Florida, they allowed eleven points, and Florida actually looks pretty good. They they do not allow points. The most they've allowed this season was at Baylor. They allowed thirteen points. So I think Utah has one of the best defenses in the country. So I'll, I'll give some grace to um, to the freshman QB. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going to stay out west, but I'm going to go to the conference that might eventually be merged with the Pac-12, Pac-2, whatever we're calling it, and go to the Mountain West and talk about the game between Boise State and San Diego State. Boise State ended up winning 34-31. It was a back-and-forth game pretty much throughout. San Diego State was winning 17-14 with the 248 left in the first half, but... Boise State kicked a field goal with 22 seconds left before halftime. Then they scored again in, uh, in the middle of the third quarter with a field goal. And then they got another touchdown just a few minutes later. So they went from being down 17 to 14 to being up 27 to 17 as they went into the fourth quarter. And they traded touchdowns throughout. San Diego State scored, got a touchdown to cut it to 27 24. Boise State went up 34 to 24. San Diego State did get a final touchdown with 42 seconds left on a quarterback Jalen Maiden run, uh, but it was 34 31. They couldn't get the ball back. Uh, this is another one of those games not dissimilar from uh, the Washington State Oregon State game, where not super chaotic in terms of like, oh my God, can you believe that just happened? But just a really thoroughly entertaining game between two teams that were well matched against each other. Overall, no fall weddings. We, try to pick which games are going to be the best ones to watch in every window. And we often say like, you don't have to be good teams to have a good game. I think these two teams are are good for, for mountain West teams. Uh, they're not going to be teams that are obviously challenging for college football playoff berth, but they are teams that are good for the level they're at. And they were very well matched. So I found this to be a very enjoyable game with two teams that I like watching. Um, not super chaotic, but I will go, because of the back and forth nature of it, uh, I'm going to go with just slightly over that Oregon Colorado game, which had all of its chaos off the field. And I'm going to go with a 44 on that one. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I think the MO, both as you said, for your podcast and for fourth quarter chaos and for action packed, really most of the podcasts here on the FFSN College Football Network, these don't have to be the marquee matchups. There can be great games with two. Mm -hmm okay teams and those are some of the most exciting games and we're not always going to talk just about the Ohio States and Notre Dame games but we're going to talk about this bonkers Mountain West game that happens out there we might talk about a Hawaii game that happens at 2 a.m at some point that we can find absolutely thrilling things from every corner of the college football map and just because these teams aren't great doesn't mean that there's not a lot to talk about. And and so, yeah, that is absolutely the MO of this podcast. I'm glad we're talking about it and bringing it up because there are some wild games out there. And just because neither team is ranked, neither team is great, there's still some exciting stuff on the field. Absolutely. All right, Corey, wrap us up with one final game from the SEC. Yeah, so back to the SEC. And this was Ole Miss at Alabama. Again, another ranked versus ranked matchup. Alabama, really with their season on the line every single game at this point after the loss to Texas, they have no room for error. They finally tried to settle in on a quarterback. Jalen Milrow got the starting job. He was going to be the guy, and he actually looked good. Jalen Milrow looked good, and Ole Miss that had their quarterback situation figured out with Jackson Dart 
he had a couple struggles in this game. The Alabama offense went back to looking great. And Ole Miss, a team that I actually really liked, Lane Kiffin going up against his former boss and Nick Saban. Bama's defense kept Ole Miss to just 10 points. There were two drives that Ole Miss had in the entire fourth quarter, just two drives. They were down 14. So really, they needed to get a touchdown on both of those drives. The first one, Alabama defense gave them no breathing room. They suffocated them very quickly. Uh, they hit fourth down and Ole Miss punted it away. And then in the final drive, in just the final minutes of this game, Ole Miss, they, there was actually one thrilling play. There was a fourth and 23 just to keep the game alive. And Jackson Dart actually, I believe it was a 25-yard completion. So they kept the drive alive. They made it into the red zone. I think it was the 18-yard line of Alabama. But again, they were down two touchdowns in the final minutes. So there was no field goal consideration. There was a, They needed touchdowns. They went for it all the way up to fourth down. They couldn't find the end zone. They lost by two touchdowns. 24-10, to 10, Alabama beats Ole Miss, giving the Rebels their first loss, to the, loss of the season. They are both now one-loss teams. And yeah, it was, it was an interesting game. Again, Lane Kiffin against his former boss, figuring out exactly what is Alabama. Is this a team that... They are really good, and Texas is just phenomenal. At least they're really good if they have their quarterback situation figured out with Jalen Milrow. How good is Ole Miss? Because we didn't really know. They had an impressive win at Tulane in Week 2, but we still weren't sure. And it seems like both of these programs are good, maybe not quite to the level of playoff contenders, but still two good programs, an interesting game, still not much chaos, and even with what Ole Miss was trying to do at the end, at no point did it look like there was any chance they could come back in the game. So it'll kind of end the podcast on a down note, but I'll give it a chaos rating of 21. All right. That will give us an overall chaos rating for week four of your 2023 college football season of 463 points. That will put it not only behind weeks one record of 555 points, but it actually is the lowest chaos rating that we've had wow. in the first four weeks of the season. Um, obviously some big heavy hitters at the top with Ohio state, Notre Dame, NC state, Virginia, and Florida state Clemson. Maybe my Penn state, Iowa pick uh, at 25 is dragging it down, but I, I I'm sticking. That with was that. not chaotic. That was ugly. No. <laughs> that was an yeah. ugly game. No, it's just, this was a top heavy week and there were three yeah. games that were massively chaotic. And then there were a bunch of games that weren't. And again, these games that we thought might be chaotic. I'm I'll take, I'll take the fault. Last week you asked me what game did I think was going to be most chaotic in week four. I said, I thought Colorado, Oregon would be nuts. And it really wasn't. That did not live up to the hype. Ole Miss, Alabama didn't live up to the hype. Utah, UCLA, none of these games were as crazy as we hoped that they would be, except for just a couple at the top. So it was an exciting week of college football. It was really entertaining. There were some good games, but just not as much chaos as we were hoping for. All right, so that gets us to what you just mentioned. I'm going to put you on the spot. Normally, we kind of talk about a number of games. Just give me one. What do you think will be the most chaotic game of week five. So I made the mistake last week of buying into the Deion Sanders hype. I thought that that would be a chaotic game. I didn't think they would win, but I thought they would lose by maybe 10 to Oregon and that that game would be crazy. This week they have USC at Colorado in Boulder at noon. Am I tempted to pick it? Yes. Am I going to pick it? No, because I, Fool me once, shame on me, right? Or shame on you. I forget what the George Bush quote was, but I'm not going to get fooled again. I don't think Colorado keeps this too close. The opening line was 24 and a half. I think USC is a phenomenal team. Will it be maybe entertaining? Hopefully more entertaining than the Oregon game, ideally. But I don't think it's going to be too chaotic because I do think USC runs away with this. LSU versus Ole Miss, maybe... SC versus Tennessee, maybe, but I'm going to go for the first time that ESPN College Game Day is ever going to Durham, North Carolina. I'm going to go Notre for Dame football. for football. For football. Yes, they've yeah. been there many times for basketball, but first time for football. First time that many people realize that Duke has a football program. <laughs> Notre Dame is pissed off after that Ohio State game. That stadium was silent in South Bend. The players were silent. Sam Hartman, you saw him there during the game just looking despondent. They are going to have a massive chip on their shoulder. They know that now their season, 
they have no room for error. They could maybe slip into the college football playoff with one loss, but they absolutely cannot with two losses. And so there is zero room for error now for Notre Dame. They are going to come out furious and Duke has so much to prove. Are they legit? Is this the team that beat up on Clemson and can actually be a power player in the ACC and in the country? Or is Notre Dame just going to steamroll them? I think this game could be wild. I'm hoping that it's an exciting game. I don't want Notre Dame to go in there and just flex all over Duke. I believe in the Blue Devils. I think this is going to be a good game. I think it ends up being under 10 points by the end, maybe even a one-score game. But I do think it'll be chaotic. And the Cameron Crazies, we've seen what they can do in Cameron Indoor (laughs) Stadium. Let's see what they can do at Wallace Wade Stadium. Give me Notre Dame versus Duke this week. All right. I like it. I'm going to go Friday night. And you mentioned the fact that they thought that maybe Cam Rising would be available for the Utah Utes this week. He was not. Maybe he's available for a Friday night game on the road against Oregon State. DJ Uyunglele and the Beavers are coming off a a disappointing loss to Wazoo. They're back home for a nine o'clock game on FS1. I think both of these teams are very interesting for very different reasons. It is definitely going to be a strength-on-strength matchup with Utah's defense and Oregon State's offense. So if you throw Cam Rising into the mix, that makes it a little bit more compelling when Utah has the ball. But overall, I think it's a a really fun game, a really interesting game. It has the potential to be very chaotic if both of these teams are hitting on all cylinders on their respective sides of the ball. I want to see Cam Rising in this game and then especially in a couple weeks late October at USC versus Oregon Mm -hmm. back to back. He's got to be out there and he's got to be back in the swing of things. So if they can get him in this game and he, he starts feeling back to his normal self, then he's got a game against Cal. Then he can just hit the ground running against USC and Oregon. I want to see it. And Oregon state, anytime that they play a team that is leaving them for dead, I think there's going to be a chip on their shoulder there. And so Utah going back to the Big 12, Oregon State being left behind, that should be an exciting one. All right, everybody, that is all that we have for your week four edition of the Fourth Quarter Chaos Podcast. If you want to follow the Fans First Sports Network on social media, you can find us at Fans First SN. You can follow me on social media pretty much anywhere at BWW. Matt, Corey, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on social media at Corey E. Cohen or on Blue Sky. It's just Corey Cohen. But generally, if you search for Corey Cohen, uh, you can find me there. And you can also find uh, Pit Talk Network on social media as well. All right, everybody. We will have lots more content for you here on the Fans First Sports Network College football feed throughout the week. So please make sure that you are following along on whatever podcast platform that you get your daily dose of goodness from. We've enjoyed it. It's been chaotic. I need to go take a nap because I am still coming down from that high from the Buckeyes win in South Bend on Saturday night. So enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Enjoy the week. And we'll be back to talk to you next weekend.